It's good to see everyone this morning. You can open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1 for our scripture reading this morning. Psalm chapter 1. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray. Father, as we sing today, you are truly the one we praise and adore. Father, for you are the almighty God. You are our creator. You are an unchanging God. You're God of truth and love. You're God who sovereignly watches over us and cares for us and carries out your plan for history and your plan in our lives. And so we're so thankful for your involvement, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for us, who took our sins and rose again. Thank you that you are a powerful God who defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave and offers to us an eternal hope, the forgiveness of sins and a glorious future. And Father, we rejoice in you together today and to give thanks for that. And Father, thank you for each one who's here today, Father, for we come together around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to give you thanks and praise, to learn more from your word and more what you have for us in your word, to learn more about you and, and, and what you plan for us for all eternity. And so, Father, we pray today that you would prepare us to hear your word, settle our hearts, Father, and help us to be focused on your word, that we might be sensitive to your spirit, and that we might be willing to receive the things you would teach us today. Father, for you are the God of truth, and may we desire today that your word, your, the Bible, might be the foundation of all of our lives and everything we do and everything we think, that it might be directed according to your truth, according to your word. For, Father, that is the only hope in this, in this world we live in, Father, for the world we live in seems to be getting crazier and crazier as it, as it departs and continues to depart from the truth of your word and, and expresses the darkness of the heart of mankind. And Father, we, re we recognize that the only hope we have is Jesus Christ. To come back to the truth, uh, to live the truth, and as your children, we're to share the truth with others that they might f know him as well. So prepare us, Father, to be those witnesses, to be the light that we ought to be to those around us. And Father, there's people in all of our lives who are without Christ, without hope, families that are broken, people that are hurting, and Father, we pray that you'd prepare us to share the message of the love of Christ with the world around us even today. And Father, we pray for those around the world. We think of our missionaries and others and churches that are preaching your word today in truth. And I pray that you might continue to use your word. And Father, may we as believers, as a, as a corporate family of believers, a universal family, may we be alert and aware of the needs around us that we might be taught of you and might be encouraged to serve you as we grow in our love for you even today. And so for those of us who are here today, Father, we trust that you will receive the glory. Be our teacher and guide once again, now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Get back to Romans chapter 1, where we'll continue our study of this uh, 
quite informative and wonderful book, Romans chapter 1. We saw last time in verses 16 and 17 the core of the message of the book of Romans, Paul's emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's driving at in this book. He wants people to understand that the answer for humanity is Jesus Christ because in his following chapters, these next few chapters or portions, he is going to be addressing the depravity of man, why man needs help, why man needs a savior. And, 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 it, and at times it gets quite ugly. But it comes to the conclusion as we'll drive towards chapter three that there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in verse 10 and verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so he's gonna spend a couple of chapters detailing that depravity, that need, the fact that we're, we've sinned and we've come short of God's glory and that we need rescue, that we need a savior. And that's why he says in, in these verses, and he's verse 15, that he was ready to preach the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And that's what's important. That's what we stressed last time, the fact that a person can receive the benefits of the work of the cross, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again for us, that we receive that by faith alone in Christ alone. Later on, in another book, excuse me, in John 8, verse 24, Jesus said this. He says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And our sins is the problem. Sin has offended a holy God. It requires a judgment of God. And yet Jesus took that judgment for you and I on that cross. And all Jesus says, you, you, if you don't believe, you need to believe and place and anchor your faith in the Savior, you will die in your sins. And that's, that's the emphasis here that Paul puts on this message. That a person has to trust Christ, come to Christ as the one who provided righteousness and salvation for you and I apart from works. So as we come to verse 18, we see this verse in introduced by the word for. A continuing a thought, a purpose. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so he gives a reason why he he puts an emphasis on the gospel, the good news of salvation. Is a reason because, because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. God brings judgment upon sin. God will punish sin. And, and Jesus Christ, we know, is the good news, the gospel. Jesus was punished for us, but unless we trust him as Savior, we'll suffer the wrath of God. And so we find here the wrath of God revealed towards the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And we'll, as I said, we'll address that here in this section. Now what's interesting is that the wrath of God is revealed here. It's been revealed. And it was revealed in the, in the cross of Christ. Because when the cross of Christ, we see how serious God takes sin. Because God sent his only son, his beloved son, to become a man. And to then he took the Lord Jesus Christ, allowed him to be put on the cross, and then God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 says, it was God who bruised him. God who made his soul an offering for sin. And if, that, if, if it required such a great cost, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what that's saying. It's such a great cost that God had to give his only son as the only remedy for sin. Because Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. And he, as an innocent lamb, was our substitute for the payment for sin. And that 
that payment on the cross reveals the wrath of God, that God will punish sin. He doesn't wink at sin, doesn't sweep it under the carpet, doesn't ignore it, doesn't, he's not like some maternal grandfather that just kind of pats you on the back and says, that's okay, we'll just forget about it. No, it requires a penalty because God is a just and holy God. But the good news is that we see here is the gospel. It means good news, doesn't it? Jesus took that wrath on himself. And that's and in John 3, 36, we're told, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And that's the good news. Because man inevitably seeks to attain heaven through his good works, through his own efforts. Later in the book of Romans, we're going to see in Romans 4, in regards to Abraham, even in Abraham it says, but to him who works not, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Work not, but believes. He believing is not a work. It's simply a reception of the gift of eternal life. You know, the, the, the great preacher Spurgeon wrote and reminds us that salvation is completely by grace alone. God in his grace freely provided for us a remedy, a rescue, and that was the cross of Christ. And he goes on to point out that faith is the only conduit through which we receive that. It's faith in Christ that we receive the benefits of the cross. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. Later in Romans, we're going to see in chapter 4 as well, that the writer comes to the conclusion that therefore salvation, therefore it, salvation, is of faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure. And those three things go together. Salvation is received by faith because it's provided by grace. And if God gives us something freely, the only way we can receive it freely is through faith. Because faith is simply saying thank you. For the, valuable, for the, for the wonderful and valuable and tremendous gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result is assurance because Jesus paid it all. And so, that's the good news. The wrath of God is revealed in the cross of Christ, but the cross of Christ also reveals, obviously, our eternal hope and salvation available to all. But he goes on in verse 18, he says, these, these folks that Jesus died for, the, the, the objects of the wrath of God, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he begins to describe humanity here. Humanity suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. What does that mean? Suppress means to hold down, doesn't it? It, means to, it really means to, to ignore to, or to avoid. And what he's saying is here that man is so busy living an ungodly life, a godless life, that he doesn't need the gospel. He finds his fulfillment and pleasure in all the wrong places, you might say. And mankind is often chasing the deception, a mirage, that, that ungodliness and all the offerings of this, of this world brings fulfillment and satisfaction. That's why people never get enough. That's why those who are in substance abuse often increase their substance because they don't get the satisfaction in, in today's dose, and so they increase the, 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 the amount or the frequency and, and so on. We're always looking for a new thrill, a new high, because this world does not satisfy. <coughs> Excuse me. But occupation with these things causes us to ignore, to suppress the truth, thinking that we can find the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, the fulfillment of life in somewhere else besides Jesus Christ. And so what people often are so consumed with what they think is really living, getting all the gusto they can get while the getting's good, really is suppresses, distracts them from re recognizing that only the truth of God has the answers. Only the truth saves and delivers. It preserves. It protects. 
but our behavior today has suppressed that. We abandoned it. In fact, we considered it even foolishness, if not a fairy tale. And so he goes on discussing here then these, these people of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 19, he says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, if even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And what God does here in these verses, he lays the foundation for his judgment. Because he says, I have revealed myself. And that's what he says in these two verses. I have revealed myself. That's why they're without excuse. And first of all, he says, what may be known of God is manifest first in them. For God has shown it to them. We call this a God consciousness, or sometimes we describe it as our conscience. There's an awareness, a sense of right and wrong, a feeling of guilt. All those things are there because God put an awareness of his holiness, of his laws in our hearts. And no matter where you go in the world, no matter how dark the region of the world you go to, you find some standard, and often the common standard, of righteousness, of what's good and what's right. Your murder is wrong almost everywhere you go because there's a consciousness. And who, where'd that come from? That didn't evolve. That comes because the lawgiver put his law in our hearts. It makes us aware of him. And so God has revealed an, an awareness of himself in us. Paul pointed that out in Mars Hill when he said, Acts 17, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. There's an awareness of a creator. That's why, the, that's why religion is rampant everywhere you go. There's a religion. It might be a false religion. It might be an idol-worshipping religion. It might be worshiping, worshiping fish, trees, or even slugs or whatever. But there's a religion because there's an awareness of something beyond myself. That's a God consciousness. God has revealed himself to us in our conscience. He's put that witness in our hearts. Well, then in verse 20, he, he goes to another form of revelation, another way God has revealed himself, and that's creation. That's his, where he says his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead. <coughs> excuse me. And you might think of Acts, assume, excuse me, Psalm 19 when you consider this, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Wonderful passages, isn't it? The heavens declare, it means scream. And you know, many of us here like to be in the outdoors in some way, shape, or form. And, and as we look at the beauty around us and live in this beautiful area of northwest Wisconsin, it screams the creator a designer, a God of wisdom and power and might, and that's what this is saying. It's clearly seen. If we're just honest with it, then we recognize that the beauty around us is not a cosmic accident. It has a creator, and it screams of the power and wonder of God. It goes on to say in Psalm 19, day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge, and there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That line has gone out through the whole earth. Everyone has seen the wonder of the creator. And so God has revealed himself clearly, he says. God says, there's no excuses here. They have clearly see the majesty and might of Almighty God. And if they ignore it, it's because they suppress it through unrighteous. If it's not unrighteous living, it's through unrighteous theory, such as evolution and so on. It's, man has suppressed this. God says, you're without excuse. I'm sorry. And so he's laying before he enters this passage on depravity and accountability. That even these two things, and he hasn't mentioned the Bible yet, has he? We have the revelation of God through the word of God. Thank you. I found a big cup. I know these people want me to preach a long time this morning, so 
still Packers to go home to today. Sorry for that. And so God here is laying that accountability towards himself, which should be enough to turn people's hearts towards God. Well, then, what's the reaction? Verse 21. Because when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts was darkened. But when they knew God, in this context, that seems like a direct reference to this revelation. When they knew, when they recognized God in their consciousness, in in creation, and today also we have his word. When they knew God, it says something happened. They rejected him. They didn't glorify him as God. This, this verse is the beginning of this downward slide to depravity that we see in this chapter. And it explains how mankind who knew God, who God has revealed himself to, ended up in the darkness of depravity we find expressed in these verses. So mankind has turned away from the knowledge of God, and instead he turns inward here. That's what we say. When they knew God, he did not glorify him as God. Man turned inward to his own resources, to his own wisdom, his own way to live. And the result of that is the expression of what man has inside of him. Depravity, sinfulness, self-centered living. And the Bible tells us that man in his sinful condition, because sin has entered our experience, we do not have the wisdom or ability to live in a manner that is good, right, and wholesome. Now we're going to see in the next three chapters that there are moral people, religious people, as well as ungodly people, but God says all have sin. None of them really have the, the ability to, to live in a life, live a life or create a culture that brings wholesomeness to our experience, safety, stability, and security for years to come, so to speak. Jeremiah 10.23 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Instead, on the flip side of that coin, Psalm 37.23 says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And that's why we read Psalms 1 this morning. Walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, but instead meditating on the word of God day and night. That's the answer for, for our lives today, is to allow the truth of God to direct our steps, and then we'll be like that tree that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. And later, another passage, we're told when the heat comes, it won't wither because we're, we're, we're rooted in the, in the living waters of God. Well, we go on here. It says, first of all, then we begin seeing in this passage the, the, the steps, the downward steps of depravity. Let's add to this verse 22 and 23 where it says, professing them to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And what you see here is the progression downward, spiritually, morally, and socially in this in this response to the revelation of turning away from the revelation of God. And the first thing they mention here is they did not glorify him as God. For the first thing. So what does that mean? What does, it, what does that look like when a culture, when a people, a family, a church, a nation does not glorify God as God? Well, obviously it, it, it means they didn't at least didn't acknowledge his person. That he is the creator. He is who he says he is, the almighty God, the all-wise God, the sovereign God, the unchanging God, a God of truth, justice, and, and love, always expressing his grace and mercy and kindness towards mankind. That's who he says he is. And, that's a, and, and if, in, in acknowledging that brings God the glory, the credit, the honor he is due <clears throat> in his life. A 
second thing I think, which is, <coughs> I can't get rid of this mosquito in my, maybe it's a Asian beetle in my throat. It's been flying up here every week lately and it's gone, so I know where it is. <laughs> the second thing I think the expression of not glorifying God as God is to, is to reject his words, not to respect the Bible. We looked at Proverbs recently and saw that the fear of the Lord and awesome respect of God is the beginning of wisdom. So first in our lives, we're to, we're to have an awe for God after he's revealed himself to us. And the result then is to seek after his wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's a starting point of wisdom. And when we reject his truth, his word, we're in trouble because that's the only foundation that can be laid, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And we go, go back to, you know, the wise man builds his house upon the rock illustration that the Bible gives us. Because for the believer, the Bible is to be our guide, not one that suggests. This isn't just one of the Bibles. It's not one of those apps you download that says, hey, try this trail. Like some of you like to go hiking. They have those apps like all trails. And you say, oh, try this trail, try this trail. No, God says, I got one path for you. It's the truth of God's word. It's to be what's the, not, it's not a suggestion. It is a directive and how we ought to live because he is our creator. And that's where we find our greatest joy. Therefore, the Bible is our authority. It's authority for all of life and everything in our lives, our thought lives, our, our daily lives, our, our, our actions, our deeds, everything we do and think ought to be in line with the truth of God's word. If we want to be fruitful, if we want to be wholesome, if we want to be stable in our lives, we must live on the basis of thus saith the Lord. So how does one not glorify God as God? Don't recognize that he is who he says he is. Don't acknowledge his person. They don't respect his word. His Bible is not the authority. And then thirdly, they don't submit to his word, obviously. If they don't respect it, there's no submission. Because respecting God's word should be followed by a submission to that, to that word in our lives, to the Lordship of Christ as he directs us through the light of his word. So the first step here is they didn't glorify him as God, and along connected to that, linked to that, is neither were they thankful. They weren't thankful. And we know thankfulness should be directed towards God. There's a thankfulness that simply says, I'm really happy for me. And there's a thankfulness which expresses true gratitude towards the giver. And that's the kind of thankfulness you find in the Bible. Because God gives us all things richly to enjoy. He loves to give good gifts to his children. We have promises galore of God's care for us and, and, and provision for us and protection of us. And we're to be thankful to him. We're in, in other words, we're more focused, thankfulness makes us to focus more on the giver than on the object given. That's the idea of thankfulness in the scripture. And that should be directed towards God. It's simply a recognition of his provision, his love, his care. It's, and it results in putting him first in our lives because he is the present help. He is the one who provides all that we need to lead stable and productive lives in our lives. And that's why we're told in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's a promise. That's what we rejoice in. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And thankfulness for God's work in our lives causes us to put him first and remain in a place where we can be directed by him. They weren't thankful. They didn't recognize that God's the one who keeps our world spinning on access. God's the one who keeps the, the water pure enough for us to drink, the air 
you oxygen our air at a percentage that is healthy for not, enough for us to live, God sustains life. Thankfulness. It's a recognition of God in our lives. Well, step number three, then, it says in verse 21, they became futile in their thoughts. Futile. The word means, according to divines, foolish. They became foolish in their th thinking, according to ESV. But I like the way the Holmans puts it. He says they, their thinking became nonsense, is the way they put it in the Holmans Bible. That's an interesting way to put it. But that's true to the word of God, because in 1 Corinthians 1, we saw recently that man's wisdom is foolishness with God. God's made it foolish. When man builds upon the foundation of his own wisdom, his own reason, it's foolishness, and it leads to the, 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 the behavior we see here. And it's foolish because it's an expression of a depraved nature, a nature tainted by sin. And that should be pretty obvious if you look around us today. The further cultures have departed from the foundation of God's truth, the darker it is, the more foolish it is. Sometimes you look at the world around us, you don't, you, it's so crazy, you don't even want to read the headlines. But what the world needs is Jesus Christ. He's the truth. And that's why 2 Timothy 1.7 encourages you and I as believers. He says, for God has not given us, believers, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. God brings us from, sanity, from insanity to sanity. Because you look around us and this world's insane today. And the way to get stable or sanity is because God gives us that, that sanity, that sound mind, the ability to think right, because we view, when we begin to view life through the light of the Bible, the scriptures. So <clears throat> they became futile, foolish in their thoughts. They had the wrong foundation. And the next step, number four here, it says their foolish hearts were darkened. The result of foolishness was darkening. From truth, from knowing the truth, being revealed, God revealing himself to them, to foolishness, to darkness. And that's, that's the digression here. Now, darkness implies an absence of light, first of all, doesn't it? They're not living in the light of God's truth, of God's word, that which lights our lives. But it also implies a nature of a life lived apart from the light of God's word. When we think of darkness, we think of the darkness of people's actions and behaviors and all the debauchery and cruelty and wickedness that is on the earth. That's another aspect of darkness, isn't it? But it comes from the absence of light in the first place. And it only takes a casual glance to see that darkness in every sphere of life today, isn't, doesn't it? Well, the fifth thing he mentions here then, verse 22, profess, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, the world doesn't recognize that's foolishness, what it says. They think they're smart. Sometimes you run into someone who thinks he knows everything, and the only reaction is you look at him and think, you think you're so smart. And that's kind of how God views the world. We think we're so smart. We're supposedly live today in the world of enlightenment. That's supposedly we've we've reached this evolutionary plateau in which we are we are we are on a good path of taking care of ourselves and figuring life out. Well, how about this latest scientific theory? I know if you've, some of you have mentioned this too, but I recently saw an interview of a of a scientist, some type of a, uh, and a mathematician, who has written a book and promoted the thought that in trying to explain the beginning of everything, because one of the things evolutionists cannot explain in the Big Bang Theory is where did the, where, where did the primordial soup, where did those original elements that exploded come from? Those had to have a beginning. Well, according to, according to Lawrence Krauss, who wrote 
the book, The Universe from Nothing, says if you apply quantum physics, something can come from nothing. That's enlightenment. In fact, I found this on bigthink.com. Quote, whoever said, he and he quotes, you can get something from nothing, must never have learned quantum physics. Now, it's super intelligent because we don't understand it. It goes on to say, as long as you have empty space, the ultimate in physical nothingness, simply manipulating it in the right way will inevitably cause something to emerge. If you can make sense of it, you can come up here. That's, I think, what God says simply here, professing himself wise, he became fools. It's, it's, it's become so ridiculous. It's foolish to think that we can make sense of life apart from the creator of life who's written the instruction book. And how many people today experience despair in life because they did not build their house upon the rock? Lives are crumbling. Families are broken. Hearts are hurting because of the darkness in their lives. The shifting sands of world's wisdom that they stand upon. In fact, one of the biggest consequences, oh, my visitor's back here. One of the greatest consequences of evolutionary thinking is that it makes man no, nothing more than a piece of meat. That's why we don't value human life. That's why we can cancel culture. That's why we can abort babies. Because in an evolutionary model, there's no value in a soul. You're just an evolved animal. And that's why people have devalued life today. And that's why so many people are hurting and broken today because they've lost sight. They've rejected the revelation of God. Well, it gets worse. Verse 23 says, They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, and so on. The idea here, in some versions, use the word exchanged. They traded in the glory of God, knowing his person, knowing his truth to guide our lives. It's a glorious thing to live by. A God who is incorruptible, which means he's imperishable, he's eternal and unchanging. God doesn't change like the wisdom of the world changes. And we traded all, that all in for mankind's best. Here it says in the time the Bible is written, instead to give honor and glory to, to worship idols, images of man and animals, which are corruptible, which are perishable. The idea here really is that man became secular. He became occupied with this world below with no thought of heaven above. He became secular, find, trying to find fullness of life and meaning in life and direction in life from the things of this world apart from a relationship with God. It's interesting in some of the passages such as Isaiah 44 where God describes the folly of an, folly of an idol. In one portion, he, he says, you know, a person goes out to the wood pile, takes a piece of wood, splits it, takes it and throws it in a fire and takes the other part and makes an idol out of it. Made with man's hands. And what that all represents really is the idea in, in, in man's secular existence, he has to create his own religion because we have this, this, this consciousness in us which makes us aware of something beyond ourselves and that's why someone has said man is incurably religious. And, and so what this represents here is trading in God for, in this case, idol worship, including people and animals, means that um, man likes to create his own religion. And that's convenient, by the way. Just make up your own religion. Create one that's convenient, that fits your, your, your appetites. It allows for your, your, the passions and maybe some of the, the questionable things in your lives. We all create our own religion apart from God, which really in reality makes us gods of our own existence. We become the determiner of what is right and wrong in our lives, and that's what this represents. 
to exchange the glory of an unchanging God, unchanging truth, which is the foundation for life, for a religion that excludes God and, and um, makes us God in our own life, hearts and lives. Well, as you go on here, in verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is the first of three mentions that God gave them up or gave them over. And it kind of creates a picture of like mankind was like a dog tugging at a leash, you know, about pulling you off your feet. And sometimes you walk the dog and he walks you in reality. And, and that's the idea here. And, God's, and God gave them up. He allowed them to go there. And I mean, I'm assuming that's because instead of judging them, he allowed mankind to turn in his direction, in his own selfish direction. God gave them over to their lusts, it says here. And we'll deal with this a little more as we get to the other two. But in verse 25, we go, let's go there next, where he says, Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so, number eight, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Well, the New King James Version here says the lie. Some versions say a lie. But I believe the lie is maybe an accurate translation because... It could be a reference back to the original temptation in the garden. Remember in Genesis 3, 5, when, when Eve was tempted, it says, For God knows the day you eat of it, Satan said to Eve, the serpent said to Eve, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the lie? You will be like God. That's the lie. And I think that lie undergirds every evil action, activity, and temptation in all of life and all of history. You can be like God. You can call your own shots. You can do your own thing. You don't have to answer to anybody. That's the lie. That's the appeal of Satan. You have the capability to be your own God. In fact, even to the Lord Jesus, he said, you know, if I, I, I can make you a God right now. You can have the world because Jesus, as a son of God, was promised the throne of David. And Satan says, I'll give you the rule of the world right now if you'll worship me. You see, here in Romans 125, it, it mentions that. He worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Who's the, cre who's the creature? It's you and us. That's us, the created ones, the creatures, the created ones. We worship self. Sin has turned us inward to think that we can be our own God, run our own life. And, and, and we've exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, for the lie that we don't need God. In our lives. We can decide what is right and wrong. We can decide what's truth and error. We can decide what's good and evil. In fact, in this in the world today, we can decide what people we need or what people we don't. And we'll get rid of the ones we don't and we'll just keep the ones we need. And that's what it's coming to in the world today. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. I think oftentimes behind Many people's resistance to trust Christ as Savior is, is, is this, is this acknowledgement that they have to acknowledge that God is who he says he is. And if he is the almighty creator, our creator, then we answer to him. He is sovereign over us. And we're going to be judged by him someday. We're going to face him someday. And we, by nature, in our pride, don't like to answer to anybody. None of us do. We all rebel against authority, at least from time to time. 
Instead, we want to be God in our lives, and that's a lie Satan sold. And so they exchanged that, the truth of God for the lie. Well, then it goes on in verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Oop, I want to be 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned their lusts for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Here we see God gave them up to vile passions. In verse 24, we see God gave them up to uncleanness in the pursuing of the lust of their hearts. Here, we see God gave them up to their vile passions. In the first case, when God gave them up to uncleanness to dishonor their bodies among themselves, that's how it's described. And the Bible uses the word lust here to refer to our inner evil desires. The inner, one dictionary defines it as being impurity. And the usage of this word in the New Testament is always in relation to sexual impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. It's referring to fornication and adultery. 1 Corinthians 6.13 tells us how the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God created our body to glorify him. And in Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And one of the first steps here in the moral decline here in verse 24 is God gave them over to, to, to fornication and adultery and all this type of sexual abuse that exists outside of marriage today, shacking up, pornography, which really is described in verse 24 and, and 25 as worshiping the creature once again rather than the creator. God's given them up to pursue their evil desires, their lusts, their destructive desires in their lives. And it's sad today that as people so often focus on some of the deeper debauchery that the world is involved in today, they forgot how tragic it is for the marriage bed to be abused today because God intended it for pleasure, for the expression of love and giving one giving themselves to another and the world has turned into a, a, a selfish ambition. Well, vile passions in verse 26 and 27 describe homosexuality, doesn't it? God gave them up to vile passions. They took a step further from adultery and fornication and sexual abuse. God says they turn to homosexual. It's called vile. The word vile means degrading, shameful, it's disgraceful. It arises out of a burning lust, which is hard to control once lit, by the way. And God's leaving no doubt where he stands on this, this issue. And somehow people sometimes think that the Bible... Want, they want to think the Bible accommodates homosexuality, and it's awful clear here. It's part, it's part of the downward spiral to of the, in the expression of depravity. He says it's against the natural use of, of, of a person's body. It's against nature even, he says. It's against reason, which really indicates to us these attitudes are born out of a spirit of rebellion. I'm going to do it my way whether God says so or not. If it's even against nature. And so God here condemns homosexuality. There's no way, shape, or form about it. God gave them up. They wanted to take it, and, and, and God says that's too bad. But that's one of the steps in the downward step. When it says here receiving the penalty that was due, it could be a question. We're not sure what that refers to. It could refer to the judgment of God, referred to back in verse 18, the judgment that's going to happen when everyone faces their creator. 
But someone has pointed out it could refer to the abandonment by God. Because when you abandon God's ways, you're going to suffer the consequences. And one of those is, 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 is you lose sight of the, 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 intention, the original intention that God had for sex and marriage. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And that may, may, might be what this means. When we abuse God's original design, we lose the joy and the fulfillment that God intended. As we go on to verse 28, here it gets worse, and it says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being full of all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so... God gave them up to a debased mind, a depraved mind. And, and he mentions along the way here another, another attitude in this downward step to, to depravity. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They got to that point where they just said, you know, there is no God. He's irrelevant. He's outdated. You know, there are books written like God is Dead. That is, it was a bestseller. And... Wiersbe points out in, in his commentary that a debased base mind is a mind that cannot form right judgments in life. And God gave them up. He was a gentleman, and that's what we wanted. He, he let them, let humanity move in that direction. Now, this is a laundry list of the depraved heart of man. It is ugly, ugly, ugly. But when you read it, you could almost take any one of those items listed here and think, okay, you can find that one in this news article, and this one in that news article, or this one down the street, or, or over in the next town. These are, we, these are the expression of man's heart. This is where we're at today. This is how far man has come today through, through adultery and fornication to homosexuality to further perversion and darkness today. In fact, I sometimes have said, when you think of the gender, gender identity foolishness today, it seems man has even stepped beyond today in our country, this list. The darkness has gone beyond here unless you want to include in this, in this passage all manner of unrighteousness is listed here. Maybe that's part of it. Inventors of evil, maybe that's part of it. But man, what, what we're doing today isn't even listed here in the darkness of our lives. You find today the craziness, the foolishness of people today even marrying their pets, their dogs. Look it up. People marry their dogs, their pets. Now, I mentioned this to one person recently. They said, well, doesn't the dog have anything to say about that? He can't say I do. And then, worse than that, we find people marrying inanimate objects. A roller coaster, a smartphone, a warehouse, the bullet Berlin Wall, a robot, a stone, trees, a choo-choo train. One man even married a life-size picture of himself. Well, it's almost humorous. It's tragic and sad. And you, and you, you know, if you look it up, you find pictures of these people steps, and you think, how, how, how sad. And it's all because they've gone into such darkness and departing from the living God. 
God here firmly says these things are not fitting. They're not fitting. They're not the way God intended for us to live. They're morally wrong, I think one version says. Well, there's one more step. In verse 32, he says they promote wickedness. He says in the end of the verse, they not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. I think the New American Standard Bible says they give hearty approval. Holmans once again says they applaud others who practice them. They promote this kind of debauchery and wickedness. They laugh at it. It's a matter of jokes and skits and even subjects on TV shows because they're promoting these agendas in open defiance of God in spite of knowing the righteous judgment of God. That's what's interesting here. This passage started out with they know better. In spite of that, they are promoting this kind of ugliness, depravity, and sinfulness in their lives because they do not know Christ as their Savior. Now, these downward steps included, they didn't glorify God as God. They weren't thankful. They became foolish in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. They turned to their own wisdom. They exchanged the glory of God for the things of this earth. They became secular. They began pursuing fleshly lusts. They exchanged God's truth for the lie that they can be gods in their own life and make their own decisions and do what they think is right or wrong. Thus, therefore, man became God of his own existence. He turned to sexual perversion rejected the knowledge of God, pursued deeper and darker perversions, and approved and promoted wickedness. Certain things are listed that in regards to these downward steps. But it all started when they knew God didn't glorify him as God. And so who are those people? Is it merely the people that saw God in creation, that was aware of a consciousness in our heart? And I think it could reach beyond that to those in the church, those who may have known Christ as Savior. It began when we drift from the priority of God in our lives. That's where it begins. It always begins with the church. Because the church is the responsibility to step this tide, to be the light of the world, not to become apathetical and indifferent in our thinking and to fall away from a close personal walk with Jesus Christ. Churches who turn to conflict and, and a community-minded mindset forget their spiritual heritage and their, and their, and their vision and their burden to reach the lost or commission to read the law, reach the lost. Instead, we and love one another and forget that those around us are, are on their way to a crisis eternity. And so we serve God on our terms instead of humble submission to him. And, we, and, and, and history tells us that spiritual fervency has a lifespan, unfortunately. History repeats itself in churches, in cultures, in families, and nations. So maybe our desire as we consider these verses Glorifying God as God, as being thankful, having that fervent relationship with him. Maybe our desire to be on guard that we're not the generation that moves or contributes to the, the move in the wrong direction, but rather those who, who shine brightly. The darker the night, the brighter the light, they say. And that's our responsibility, isn't it? In order that we might finish well and bring many to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we went quickly over this passage, and yet it's a passage we do not like to even focus on because it describes our flesh, our nature, the sinfulness of our heart and its capabilities and capacities that the, the, describes lives when, left, when lived apart from the truth and rejection of the truth, departure from the truth, express such ugliness and sinfulness in our hearts and lives. May we abhor these things, Father. You tell us that he that loved the Lord hate evil, but in turn may we cling to Christ 
May he be our joy each and every day. May we shine lightly. May we see the world around us, not in a critical fashion, Father, but out of a heart of compassion. That, Father, though we stand against such evil in this world, Father, we recognize there's people who don't know better, people who need to know Christ, people who need to come to the truth. And, Father, may you encourage us to be those lights, to shine brightly for you. Father, thank you that in our depravity, you brought light to our lives. In our darkness, you brought the Savior to rescue us, to save us, so that we might stand firmly upon the truth and find wholesomeness and, and fruitfulness and stability in our lives. So apply these things now, this morning, into our lives, by your spirit and your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name.